big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patron, Emily. Welcome to the team. Also, our live show is this Saturday, November 18th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time at Caveat NYC. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Get them before they sell out. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be talking about our boy Wishbone, playing some games, selling exclusive live show merch, and most importantly, meeting all of you. So please come. We're going to have so much fun. And now enjoy this week's episode covering episode two of the 2009 Emma miniseries starring Ramala Garai with our guests Emily and Lauren from Reclaiming Jane. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen novels and watched many adaptations of her work. And I, Molly, am doing that for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast respectively, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about the second episode of the 2009 Emma miniseries starring Ramala Garai and Johnny Lee Miller. And we are joined today by Emily and Lauren from Reclaiming Jane. Hello. Hi. Hello. We are so excited to have you guys. Uh, you have generously had us on your podcast before, and it feels so right for us to return the favor. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes. So why don't you tell our listeners first a little bit about your podcast? So Reclaiming Jane is uh, the the pitch is it's a an Austin podcast for fans on the margins. So we try to bring in conversations that aren't typically or aren't publicly had within Austin fan spaces. Um, we try to talk about topics like gender and race and, you know, the the controversial things that uh, the stereotypical Austin fan might not touch on. We love that. We love that here. And we in this community are all about the making Jane Austen gay content for the masses. Oh, oh I was going to say for the masses, but the gay masses to be extra specific. I thought you were going to say making Jane Austen content gay, which is something that we do frequently. Yeah, it's it's a it's a yes and situation. Yes. And uh, so I feel like the ethos of our two podcasts lines up nicely for you guys to be on for this discussion. So that leads me to asking you guys some questions about your relationship to Jane Austen, which we ask all of our guests, starting with what is your relationship to Jane Austen? I can start. Uh, my relationship to Jane Austen started with being a teenage fangirl after I downloaded Pride and Prejudice on iBooks because I thought that was a good idea. I don't know who decided to tell me. I don't think anyone did. I think I just downloaded it from the iBooks bookstore. But I read Pride and Prejudice like on an iPhone 3 
And somehow that still got me to be a Jane Austen fangirl. And I've been obsessed with it ever since. I was an English major in college. So did the lit nerd thing and took a Jane Austen course. So I read all of her works for the first time in college and generally enjoy watching Jane Austen adaptations, specifically of Pride and Prejudice, but really of all of them. Love it. Yeah. Similarly, I began as a teen fan. I read Pride and Prejudice when I was like 13 or 14, probably. Um, and then just kind of stopped. <laughs> I, I read Pride and Prejudice and that was it and did not read any more Austin. I like attempted a couple of things, um, but never got into it until Lauren sent me a text that said, hey, what if we made a Jane Austen podcast? So I'm uh, I'm kind of the Molly of Reclaiming Jane. Love that. Okay, but you also were watching a specific adaptation multiple times. You didn't just read Pride and Prejudice and never come back. Okay, you don't have to call me out like that in public. Yes, I do. <laughs> On another podcast. <laughs> no, the uh, the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, of course. Of course. I was completely obsessed with uh, like junior year of high school. I would watch it like minimum once a week. It was a lot. Amazing. That was me and Titanic. Oh my goodness. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's a big commitment. Yeah. My family was like, again? Well, both are really great examples of highly charged uh, period pieces where it's about the yearning and not as much about the, for lack of a better term, hand on the car. Mm -hmm. You're so Mm -hmm. right. So question number two is, what is your favorite piece of Austin content? I think Emily might have just answered this question, but it can be anything. It can be a tweet you really liked about Jane Austen, one of her most famous books. Uh, it can be a movie, a YouTube series, whatever really uh, floats your boat. I think my favorite right now is actually Fire Island, mm. which is at the forefront of my mind because I watched this past weekend with some friends. It's a great choice. <laughs> An excellent choice. I think mine is also a Pride and Prejudice adaptation, but a YouTube series. It's the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. Emily and I watched that obsessively our sophomore year of college. Like, every week as the episodes came out and it still holds a very special place in my heart. So gotta say LBD. We recently covered LBD on the podcast and I went back and watched it for the first time since college. And I was like, wow, this holds up, but also is an exact time capsule to like 2012. Yeah. It's so impressive. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. The combo is very jarring. (laughs) I think that's my favorite adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. I think I've said that before, but it's just so good the way it it manages to get the essence of what Pride and Prejudice is about, but also just be a very compelling web series on its own. Ugh. Absolutely. And really utilizing the format it's in to tell the story. Yes. Ugh, great, great choices. Question number three, which Austin character do you relate to the most and why? Okay, so I'm going to not say my stereotypical answer, which is Lizzie Bennett. But I do think so on the Reclaiming Jane podcast, we finished Persuasion. That was the last book that we read. And I got to say, I was like, I do feel a strong, a strong affinity for Anne. Um, I know that hasn't been on, on Pod and Prejudice yet, so I won't say anything more about it. So I'll just say Anne from Persuasion. Good stuff. I think I, and I will try not to drop any spoilers uh, with this, but I think right now it's Catherine Moreland in Northanger Abbey. Um, a few episodes back, I had a small rant about how she's definitely 100% autistic. And so I relate to just so deeply to so many of her experiences as like a teen trying to understand how social interaction works. So yeah, I, I think it's Catherine. 
I love that. I, I would also say that Catherine, I don't know much about Northanger Abbey because it is like one of my big Jane Austen blind spots, which we will tackle when we get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I do know is that Catherine Moreland brings fan base energy um, to Jane Austen work. 100%. Which I think is, you know, apt for a lot of relatability for people who are obsessed with fandom things. <laughs> so definitely. I think that our one of our guests on the last episode that we recorded of this mini series also said Catherine Moreland. And I'm looking forward to whenever we have guests on that their their Jane Austen character is someone I haven't read yet. I'm looking forward to like one day being like, oh now I know which one is Emily and which one's Lauren. And like, yeah. It is a little vulnerable to put that out there and be like, here, look into my soul a little bit. But you mm-hmm. know what? We're making a podcast. <laughs> Listen, it's a it's a really great litmus test for figuring out something about the guests that are uh, are visiting our podcast, which does bring us to my favorite of our questions, our last question, which is what's your hottest Austin take? So a good example of this would be that your favorite adaptation is the 1996 Emma adaptation starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Like (laughs) that kind of hot take. That is a hot take. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. This is a hot take. I don't know if it's in the same vein as an adaptation or a character rating, but my hottest Austin hot take is that if a character is described as brown or swarthy, even though I know what Jane Austen means, my hot take is that you can read that character as like non-white. Mm. I know that's not what she meant and I don't care. So that's my hot Austen hot take is that you can read that character as non-white if you want to. I love that. Yeah. I think there is room in uh, Austen's England to see a little bit more color than say maybe BBC UK sees in those series. You know, but maybe that's just. <laughs> I think there's space for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. When I brought up initially uh, my my headcanon that, that Catherine Moreland is autistic, I thought that was going to be a hot take. Evidently, it was not. <laughs> there, was, there was so much agreement with that and people pulling out arguments that they had made on that same vein. So that's apparently not a hot take. Um, I don't know. I feel like I don't have a lot of Austin hot takes. Lauren, do you know any of mine that I just don't realize? <laughs> I was going to say reading Catherine Moreland as autistic. I'm trying to think if there are other ones that you have come up with on the podcast that are like real spicy takes. I guess probably the closest I get is uh, that I I feel like there could be, I think Jane Austen could be a lot more gay. Uh, I think there's a lot more um, relationship energy, like romantic relationship energy and sexual relationship energy between same-sex characters than, uh, than is traditionally read. Emma and Jane, I'll die on this hill. Enemies to lovers. Enemies to lovers. It's the one we've been waiting for. <laughs> Other than Lizzie and Darcy. Lizzie and Darcy, my <laughs> butt. That's old hat. We're, we're done with that. Been there, done that. I think that's the real Austin hot take is that Emma and Jane are the enemies to lovers and not <laughs> Lizzie and Darcy. <laughs> that's where it's really at. Speaking of energy between Emma and Jane, let's get into talking about Episode two of this BBC miniseries of Emma that was made in 2009 before we dive too far into it. Uh, Do either of our guests have any uh, general thoughts they want to add about this uh, series? This is the first time that I've watched it. Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say I also haven't watched it before. So thank you for inspiring me and giving me a reason to sit down and watch this because this is delightful. I'm so mad at myself for not watching this before. It is so good. I am so excited. 
I didn't know this was like slightly under the radar as an adaptation because this has been my favorite Emma adaptation for years. I watched both episodes today in preparation uh, and it right off the bat gave me big like pushing daisies vibes with the narration, which was very <laughs> funny. That's actually really true. It's got that campy sort of uh, late 2000s sitcom energy to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice like I noticed the narration a little bit in episode one. But I was like, that feels so out of place. And our um, we were doing a Discord watch party and some of our fans were like, no, we love it. We love it. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't hate it. I'm just confused. But then as it came back in this episode, I was like, well, wait, this is it's doing something. I'm into it. So shall we dive right into episode two? Please. Let's do it. Starting off, we again get this beautiful intro with the intro music. And I just had to, my girlfriend was like in the bathroom or something. And the intro music came on and she was like, it sounds like you're watching Bake Off. And I was like, oh my God, same energy, right? Comforting British watches. Yes. Yeah. So we start off with Emma and Harriet reading, which we know was a big goal of Emma's to, to read with Harriet. And she is so proud of herself for reading two pages. That She's like, I have finished two pages and then she quotes the book and then Harriet goes that's very true I think <laughs> which I love um and then Emma just throws the book she's like okay that's enough of that for now we need a break to let the message just sink in I believe the correct term is yeets the oh, book you're right she <laughs> yeets the book the it's the same energy of uh Caroline Bingley reading in that one scene you know so I'm reading so that I can say that I've read or to be seen reading, but I'm not actually getting anything out of this. Like, I would not be surprised if Emma couldn't share any more than that one quote that she read. Nothing else has been retained in her brain. Yeah, she's actually just been reading that one quote over and over again so that she could read it out loud. It's just the most performative reading ever. Yeah. So they take out their book of romantic riddles. And as they're looking through it, Harriet asks Emma why she's not married yet. And Emma explains about how she doesn't need to get married. She's the master of her own house, blah, 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 blah. And she admits that it might be different if she were in love, but she never has been in love and she never will be in love, she doesn't think. It's just not in her nature, which her saying it's not in her nature brings back a thing that we said a lot during the book, which is that Emma is ace. I was just about to say that. I That was the biggest thought in my head. was like, ace, arrow, Emma? Yeah. But what if though? But what if, though, we had that discussion some during um, our book coverage, and we also had some discussion about Emma as a queer character just generally, both as one who seems to show an affinity towards women and also one who's not so interested in the idea of being with another person. And uh, a lot of listeners wrote in and said, basically, I feel very seen by this take. So I think it's a very valid reading of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh. I love Jane Austen. <laughs> I didn't have anything else to add. Um, she does say during this little rant of hers that she is looking forward to being a cool aunt uh, instead of a mother and instead of a wife. Relatable. Yeah. Our Discord members also noted that Emma and Harriet are wearing very similar outfits so it's like kind of just showing how Harriet's becoming more like Emma, but her dress is like less ornate and it's just kind of the shadow of, of Emma's, which is literally what she is. Emma's shadow. I love costuming details. Yeah. 
Then we get Elton coming in and he's brought like a list of flowers or something for the church as a guise of like why he's over there. But he is like, I heard you're making a compilation of romantic poetry. Here's a romantic poem. And Emma's like, oh, do you want to bring it to Miss Smith yourself? And he's like, no, it'll be quite safe in your hands. And Emma is so excited. She runs like a little kid to give it to Harriet. And it's very cute. And Harriet just can't figure out this poem. And she is like, Emma's going through it with her. She's like, so that means uh, court. And that part means ship. So like, what does that put it together? And Harriet's like, ship court. Ship court. <laughs> so earnest. Bless her heart. Yeah. That's just always my first thought with Harriet. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, she's this this Harriet in particular is so sweet. If we just you can't help but just like be fond of her, even as you know, nothing. There's not a thought behind those eyes. But God, you're so sweet. Like, yeah, the brain is smooth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no thoughts head empty. Yeah. She still has this like plume of curls on her temples that are so distracting to me and every time she moves her head for the riddle you, you see the curls just kind of bounce and bob up their ways it's just like every time I'm watching a scene she's so good but it just like draws in my eye immediately this is kind of an aside but that was her hairstyle or rather the general hairstyling was one thing that kind of like stood out to me as a nerd about like fashion things Harriet is the only one who has anything resembling like an actual fashionable hairstyle for the period which is so bizarre to me yeah like that's that's 18 like tens and 20s right there absolutely we were talking about this last week as well how Harriet's hairstyle obviously takes much more effort than Emma's hairstyle and so it doesn't really make sense that Harriet would have this very like loud hairstyle where Emma looks very simple and dressed down comparatively, but, you know, Elton has, like, CW hair, so I, I guess we're just not doing hair accurate in this adaptation. I wonder if it's because they want you to read Harriet as, like, out of touch, and they know that, like, most people who watch this adaptation aren't going to get that Harriet actually has a period accurate hair and Emma's is wrong, but Emma looks pretty and Harriet looks, like, weird and old-fashioned, so you get, yeah. like, the character vibes. That's my assumption is that because she has like these little ringlet curls that bounce all over the place that we'd be like, oh, she's girlish and young. Right, right. Then we get Mr. Woodhouse waiting outside of the house with his watch and he looks so nervous and it's just I just want to give him a hug. Um, and he's afraid that something happened because Isabella is late. And he's like, you know her. If she's late. Her carriage has been overturned. And then he turns to Emma and he says, do you think Miss Smith is coming down with something? I heard her sneeze in the corridor. And I was like, if that is not me, I don't know what else is. But also he's right because she is sick the next <gasps> scene. Oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. She was on to something. Thank God she didn't come over. Then uh, Isabella and John Knightley arrive, who we love, and they come in for dinner. And at dinner, Mr. Woodhouse is saying that they shouldn't have gone to the sea because it's unhealthy. And as this conversation is going on, Emma asks Knightley if she can have the salt. And he just like passes her the salt without looking at her. And she looks so crestfallen. Like she was hoping that maybe they would make eye contact or something. But they're in a fight because of Harriet and everything. And then as that little interaction is happening, the Wingfield versus Perry battle is going on, which I'm so glad that we get to keep in this 
adaptation. It's true to the book. The Battle of the Apothecaries is afoot. Perry the Apothecary. That's one of the great things about miniseries adaptations instead of movies is that there's just so much more airtime to be able to include those little details from the books. And it just, it gives you such a richer adaptation, I think. Yeah. And as the battle is heating up, Knightley jumps in and tries to change the subject to the road and how they can walk to visit Randall's, which then makes Mr. Woodhouse go on about how poor Miss Taylor, she got married. We never see her anymore. And Emma's like, we've only missed seeing her one day. And she and Knightley give a little smile at each other like, "Okay, we've diffused the situation. And then we get Emma sitting alone with the baby Emma, which our listeners pointed out is like a block of wood. Like that baby is not moving. didn't even notice that how horrible it's like a block of wood wrapped up in blankets it's just completely solid it doesn't even look like vaguely baby shaped when you see her from like when it's not a close-up on the baby's face like that's not even baby shaped that's just a blanket that's wrapped around like a rectangle yeah and you're just so focused on Romilly Garai and Johnny Lee Miller just staring at each other intently I I've watched this so many times I've never noticed that yeah that baby is uh that's fake baby And he comes over and they are talking about like how they should, you know, resolve their own conflicts as well as they resolve the ones within their family. Um, And they banter a bit about their age difference. And she's like, well, we've grown closer in judgment as we've gotten older. And then he takes her hand and says, let us be friends. He touches her hand. I screamed. I was like, oh, my God. He just held her hand with his hand. Nobody seemed as excited as me in our Discord chat. I was like, oh my God, you guys, why is nobody focusing on this? Everyone's focused on the wooden baby. (laughs) Yeah. So they kind of talk to each other through the baby. They're like, you know, tell your aunt that blah, 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 blah. And she's like, yes, tell, uh, you should grow up to be infinitely clever and not so conceited. And they're like joking. Um, and then Emma's like, I hope Mr. Martin isn't too disappointed. And we get this flashback of Mr. Martin being disappointed in the fields, being sad. And- it's giving Dan Stevens as Edward Ferrer's chopping wood. <gasps> it is. You're so correct. I forgot about that. It's like, look at me. Look how forlorn I am. Yeah. All it's missing is the rain. With my sideburns. The sideburns are a lot. They are. Yeah. So then we cut to Emma and Harriet in Harriet's room. And Emma's like, oh, you should wear this to the Weston's party. And then Harriet is just a disaster. She's so sick. And Emma's like, okay, you can't go to this party. It's a very humorous cut, though, because Emma's standing there with her dresses up. And she's like, you're going to look so gorgeous at the party. And it's cut to Harriet, who's lying in bed with, like, a spitting bucket in front of her, like... (gasps) Yeah, and her hair is down, and it's just like a big giant poof of like rat's nest. Just like she's been in bed for her days. I mean, I don't know how many days it's been, but it looks like it. Yeah. Then we cut to Emma and John Knightley walking in the square, and they run into Mr. Elton. And Emma tells him that Harriet is sick, and he's like, Oh, that's too bad. And then he sees her nephews like fighting, and he says, I'm sure having your family here is giving you comfort. And John comes over and he's like, what are you saying about my family? And uh, <laughs> and at this point, I had to share that the people in our Discord uh, chat were like, am I attracted to John Knightley? I can't take that actor seriously as John Knightley because he's a cheating brother in love, actually. And so every time I see him, that's why I, just... I recognized him. No. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. He's Colin Firth's cheating brother in love, actually. Yes. Oh, my God. I 
thought he looked familiar. <laughs> because I did the exact same thing y'all did going, hmm, that man looks familiar. And I was like, I know, I know that face from somewhere. And it's like, I know his dopey expression. He's trying to lie about why he's in Colin first house. <gasps> and then I looked it up and it's him. Unbelievable. I'm shook. Wait a minute. So wait a minute. This man has made a career off of playing the brother of Jane Austen love interest. Yes. Because I know Colin Firth is not technically a Jane Austen love interest. In but love he is, though. But he is the Jane Austen love interest. He is in the life. Jane Austen love interest. I'm dying. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Lauren. You're that so welcome. That my experience. <laughs> Truly. And they start talking about the party that the Christmas party at the Westons. And he's like, oh, I'm a poor bachelor. I can't afford a carriage. And so John invites him to come in their carriage with them. And later they're waiting for their carriage. And John is like, I only invited him because you were flirting with him so hard because she, they kind of like kept having these little eye moments where they were like, oops, he's John's being cranky John. He, he, he. And Emma's like, I wasn't doing anything like he's into Harriet. And John was like, trust me, I am always right about this sort of thing. And you better watch yourself because he's into you. Do you know that meme where it's like you just add nails to like someone who's like giving love advice? Yes. Yes, I know the person who started that for Chris Evans (laughs) was adding the nails in the bonnet. Incredible. John's insight just it feels like it comes out of nowhere Mm -hmm. because of like the scenes that we see him in earlier where he's just like bickering or being impatient but he is well okay Knightley also definitely clucked Elton uh being into Emma but John is the only one who like says it out loud and is Mm -hmm. like you're really stupid for not seeing this totally yeah the Knightley brothers are all down to take Emma down a peg so this is true yeah and Emma's like no and then Mr. Elton comes into the the carriage and he sits next to her and he goes how very cozy we all are and he's right up on her he's so close he's so close like just an arm's length there's so much space on the other side of you in this carriage you know for someone who was related to so many clergymen jane austen really did them dirty in some of this fiction yes <laughs> between elton and mr collins and i'm sure other people i'm forgetting I believe her father was also a clergyman. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this was like a fun inside joke between her and her sisters. Like her dad would never read her books. And so she's like, <laughs> or if he did read them, he was, he, he was like at the dinner table, like, so um, this uh, Mr. Elton. And she's like, oops. <laughs> I don't know. That's my, my head cannon. I like it. In this uh, carriage ride, Emma tells Mr. Elton that Harriet is doing much worse, and his immediate response is, I've never looked forward to an evening out more. And it's like, what is, where is your tact? Not present. None. The whole ride, John complains about how it's going to snow, and it's just like a montage of them riding along and him being like, look at this weather. I can't believe we're outside. It's word for word from the book. I love it. This is the Luke I hate snow monologue. Uh, no notes. Chef's kiss. Then they arrive and they get out of the carriage and she sees Knightley getting off his horse and she scolds him for not taking a carriage. And there's just some prime bickering where she's like, I'm ashamed to be seen with you. And he's like, well, you're not being seen with me. You're Mr. Elton's over there to come walk you in. And you see Mr. Elton standing there like. (laughs) This is a beautiful moment of dread, though, because you can tell she's like taking out her frustration with Elton on Knightley Mm -hmm. in this moment. Where she's like, I wanted you to escort me in. And he's like, no, no, Elton's there. He's got you. And she's like, oh, 
No. Mirroring perfectly the moment later when she tries to get John to come in the carriage and he's like, no, no, Mr. Elton will escort you home. What an instigator. Uh, it feels premeditated between the Knightley brothers here. Yeah, I think that they 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 planned this for sure. I think John planned that maybe, but George is out there just like staring adoringly at his horse and being like, la di da di da I know I have a feeling for Emma and the world. <laughs> he does love this horse. And I love what he says. Um, first of all, the horse's name is Bessie. And he's like, well, Bessie needed to stretch her legs to chew Bessie. Um, but then also he says, this man likes to come and go as he pleases, not having a call for horses and in advance and blah 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 he just like one of his uh lines in this is one of my favorites so i'm gonna save the exact wording for later but they go inside and elton makes this huge show of her helping emma get her cloak off he's like ah, ah, ah you don't want to crush miss woodhouse's cloak that is one of my favorite moments from this episode oh it's one of my cringiest moments <laughs> i cringed so hard it's so horrible the whole room can hear them. And you can just see Emma's wheel starting to turn to about, oh, no, I hate admitting when I'm wrong, but maybe John Knightley's right. This is the worst. Yeah, you can see the panic starting to sink into her eyes. And she's she goes over to Mr. Weston and he's trying to tell her about something going on with Frank. But Elton keeps coming up to her. And first he's like, is your father comfortable in that chair? And then he's like, do you want me to get you a drink? Maybe you could come sit over here. And she just misses the whole thing with Mr. Weston and she's so bummed and you can just see her being like what have I gotten myself into and then at dinner Mr. Elton tries to get Emma to sit next to him and this is one of my favorite moments Mr. Weston is like Emma over over here please and she just like goes and sits between the Westons and Elton is like oh and then it's like kind of scooches the chair he offers the seat to Isabella who gives them this look like what's up with you (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so good And then Mrs. Weston tells Emma basically what she missed, which was that Frank had set off for Highbury, but had to turn back because of a letter from his aunt telling him that she was sick, that he got like on the way. And Emma says that his setting off so recklessly is heroic and romantic and gentlemanly. And Knightley goes, I thought gentlemen always rode in carriages. (laughs) That was so good. I love him. She gives him this look like... um, I wish that facial expressions could translate into an audio medium because it's like, hmm, (laughs) basically. It's petulant. Yes, it is in a hot way. (laughs) I have to agree. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films, or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. After dinner... The ladies are sitting around talking shit about Mrs. Churchill, and then the men come in, and Elton sits directly between Emma and Mrs. Weston, which I feel like is a recurring theme from all of these adaptations, that Elton just sandwiches himself in between Emma and someone else. I don't want to be misquoted on this, but I believe that's in the book. I was going to say, I think that is actually book accurate. And it stands out so perfectly. It's such a perfect characterization moment that how could you leave that out I think now that I'm thinking about it I do recall us during the book read one week trying to find the perfect meme of someone sitting between two other people so yeah uh that explains why it's in every adaptation (laughs) um it's perfect so he's sitting in between them and he's like I hope you guys are talking about Miss Smith's cold I hope you're telling Emma that she should stay far away from Miss Smith so that she will not get sick because Emma's health is the most important thing. And as this is happening, John looks outside and goes, I knew it. It's snowing. Look where we are now. Like you wanted to come out here and look where it got us. And then they all get up and they're like, oh, my God, we should leave. And Knightley comes in and he's like, it's not really snowing that much. But he's like, if you help make your father easy, like I'll call for the coaches. And he and Emma have this sweet little moment in the corner. And so they call for the coaches. I'm glad that this happened after dinner in this one, because in the last adaptation we watched, it happened before dinner and the poor Westons were like here with this Christmas dinner by themselves. Devastating. Yeah. Um, So they're waiting for the carriages and Emma goes to get in and John walks past and she's like, "Uh, Mr. Knightley, Mr. John Knightley or whatever. She's like, can you come in this carriage? And he's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. And so Emma and Elton are alone. And... Then we get the proposal. He looks at the, he's like, look at the stars. Look how they shine for you. (laughs) You beat me to it. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what he is? If you, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume everyone here was on Tumblr in 2009. Yeah. Everyone just nodded in unison. (laughs) (laughs) You pegged us. I mean, what can I say? (laughs) Yeah. This is like he, him in the seat, the hair, the eyes, the voice and the words together just like come off as like a fan edit on Tumblr circa 2009. So hard to me. You are so right. I you know I didn't clock the fan edit, but I wrote down I was what did I say? Mr. Elton looks like he belongs in a 2000s rock band wearing leather pants, like a really bad <laughs> 2000s boy rock band. He looks like the cover art for like Hook from Once Upon a Time fan fiction. That's exactly what it is. I'm like envisioning a post in which I take his face and put it on these various things. I eagerly await that. Yeah. But can we all agree that he's hot though? Oh, I mean, yeah. he's yeah. a very handsome man. Great. 
who's clearly a very good actor because he comes off as so <laughs> yeah yeah because he got that he has the little eyebrow thing where one of his eyebrows goes a little bit higher so he looks like a cartoon when he and he's like like he's like a cartoon smoldering he kind of looks like um what's his face from tangled a little bit oh flynn, flynn rider yeah oh my god like flynn rider but with leather pants i see it Honestly, when he came on screen in the first episode, you know the thing where it's like, oh no, he's hot. That was yes. that was the reaction. It's like, wait, no. Yes. He's just unreasonably attractive in this. And you you kind of get why Emma would be like, oh yes, yeah, so eligible and why he would think himself able to marry up in the world because he's got that pretty little face on yes, him. Yes, which is book accurate. Like other like when Elton is so grimy looking in all the other adaptations, I'm like, well, he's not actually cute. So, like, why are we trying to push him on Harriet? My fiance walks through at the exact moment uh, of the proposal scene and just goes, um, okay, watching this tells me now that Alan Cumming was simply miscast in the <laughs> other one. Alan Cumming. Well, he just made it very comedic. He, yes. he like, yeah. they both did. They were a little bit. And I think that the, the Elton in the 2020 does fit with the vibe of the film as a whole because it is a little bit more campy and like over the top um in like aesthetically bigger so anyway uh back to this one he's also sweaty i just have to throw that out like he progressively gets sweatier as it goes on so his like face is shining and he like comes next to her and takes her hand at one point and she's like can you get over there please and he's like i i know that you're just refusing me as a first thing to like make me more tempted and I was like okay Mr. Collins like and then he's like saying that she had encouraged him throughout this whole time and the looks that she's giving him she's like okay sure like she does not understand at all that her friendly behavior could have been interpreted that way to be fair to her we should be allowed to be friendly without being mistaken for flirting I think we can all agree Mr. Elton is in the wrong here. Yes. Unquestionably. Yes. Yes. Even if Emma was a little clueless. <laughs> so it's a disaster, as it always is. And Emma later is getting ready for bed and we get her voiceover like, Emma, how could you have been so stupid? Um, and we get a flashback to her, like Mr. Elton looking at her painting and she hears Mr. Knightley's voice saying that uh, he's not the man for Harriet. He would never go for someone like that. And she's like, oh, how am I going to tell Harriet? And then, oh, we get my favorite scene. Knightley flings open his double doors <laughs> to look at this beautiful snowy countryside. He looks so joyous in this moment. He's so happy. I love this because like a lot of times we don't get to see Joyful Knightley just like on his own. We only get it in moments when he's with Emma. But like he actually is so freaking cute. So he like flings open the doors and he's like breathing it all in. And he goes for a nice little walk through the snowy countryside. And he meets up with John who's playing with the kids and they're having a snowball fight. And he's like, oh, my gosh, remember, Emma used to be the best at snowballs. Where is she? And he starts looking for Emma and he sees her in the window and he waves really big. He's like, hey. And, I'm like, and then they... Emma's tepid little wave back. She's like, uh, are we friends again? No, no. I, they're friends again at this point. Oh, right. Sure. They did. They made up already. She's just depressed. It's just she's like, oh, God, I'm humiliated and I want to die. And Mr. Knightley was right about everything. 
Meanwhile, Mr. Knightley's like, it's Christmas and my nephews and nieces are here. Yeah, he's so stinking cute. And then later, Mr. Woodhouse gets a letter from Mr. Elton and he's like, Emma, what's this? Why is he saying he can't come at Christmas? We didn't invite him at Christmas. The audacity of this man just never ends. Every first third of a Jane Austen book can be described as Ugh, the audacity of men. Honestly. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So Emma goes to Mrs. Goddard's and she brings Harriet a present and Harriet has a present for her. But Emma is just like in tears and Harriet's like, what's wrong? And she tells her everything about Mr. Elton. I wanted to note that I love her coat in this scene. It's like a red pea coat um, or like a burnt orange pea coat. I don't know how to describe the color, but I want it. And they're both crying. And Harriet's like, but he asked you, like, would you maybe change your mind about matrimony? And Emma jumps up and she's like, no way. She like switches on a dime um, in terms of vibes. But then she sits down and she says, he will regret his decision for you are a far better person than I could ever be. That was actually like legit sweet. It was so sweet because like you can see that Emma genuinely needs it. She's been humbled a little bit by being wrong. And she's seen that she actually like kind of messed up by making. I mean, she she still thinks that Harriet made the right decision in turning down Robert Martin. But I think that maybe in the back of her mind, she's like, ooh, maybe I messed up. <laughs> yeah. Then the seasons change. We get this like shot of the snow disappearing and being replaced by flowers. And Harriet and Emma are walking along and Harriet is still talking about Mr. Elton. And she is talking about him so much that Emma decides to bring her over to Miss Bates because that is the only place where Harriet will not be able to get a word in edgewise. And who should be there but Jane? Is that Jane Fairfax's music? <laughs> yes. Um, and this Jane Fairfax is very, like, quiet. And she's sitting there. And Emma keeps trying to ask her questions. And Miss Bates keeps answering for her. And you can see it painting Jane. Like, I cannot wait for the Jane is uh, exhausted scene. Because this Jane is showing it really well. I will neither confirm nor deny anything here. Oh, no. <laughs> That was just such a deliciously awkward scene because e Jane even tries to say at some point, like, you don't really have to read my letters because I'm sitting right here. So maybe we don't go through all that. And Miss Bates is like, oh, but in this letter right here, let me go get it. And like gets up to go get the letter and then read it. It's like, but OK, you could just but you could just be quiet. Yeah. And she just like lets it happen. I really love this casting of Jane. I'm not familiar with the actress who plays Jane in this, but. I think it gets that dynamic between Emma and Jane really nicely, very immediately, because they're both very beautiful. They're obviously contemporaries and they're both very accomplished, but you can feel Emma being blunt and a little messy in her pr presentation sometimes, but much higher status. And you can feel Jane being timid and therefore sort of revered for her very modest nature and almost in spite of herself. Mm -hmm. So as Miss Bates is reading the letter, Emma is envisioning what's happened. Um, and we see her like fantasizing about this uh, this incident with Mr. Dixon. So we see Jane and Mr. Dixon walking along with Miss Campbell and Jane slips and Mr. Dixon catches her. And this Mr. Dixon looks like Timothy Chalamet as Wonka. Oh, my God. Can we agree? Yes. I didn't see it until now, but yes. I couldn't unsee it. I was like, oh, what? 
Not at all what I pictured. The perm alone. Yes. Makes an impression. Yeah. It's a lot of hair. I've got to say, I loved the, just the drama and the dramatization of that scene and how it's so clearly just Emma's imagination completely running away with her. There's nothing to suggest that this is what actually happened, especially with the, the detail of uh, Miss Campbell standing off to the side and like looking disgruntled. Mm -hmm. You can see the, the plot starting to form in Emma's head because she is so bored with her life. And I feel like this adaptation in particular really hones in on how bored Emma is because they even go on later. We'll get there. But um, she talks about how she's never been anywhere. And she's like, but everything that I need is right here in Highbury. But she looks kind of like sad about it. So anyway, we hear the whole story and Jane is like, it's nothing. It was not a big deal, I promise. But uh, as Emma leaves she like talks to Harriet about like why does Jane think it's not a big deal what why didn't she go to Ireland with the Dixons or with the Campbells and blah 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 blah. and Harriet is just not listening at all she's like sorry what'd you say and Emma's like oh my god and then they run into a mysterious stranger I wonder who this could be (laughs) and Emma's like can I help you with you look lost and he's like no I know exactly where I am and then he rides away this interaction confused me So I think the implication is that, spoilers for our listeners who may have only watched part of this episode, it's Frank Churchill. Uh I think the implication is that a week before Frank officially arrives in Highbury, quote unquote, Jane sees him on horseback in the vicinity. Why might he have been there? One does not know. Emma never thinks about it again. Right. Was he there to see Jane? Well, according to Frank in this episode, he says, oh, I was um, he was like, it was too short of a visit. So I was like, that would be insulting. So I turned around. Yeah. 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 Which is bullshit. Yeah. Don't buy that. But yeah, the way it was edited was confusing because you don't have a sense of how much time has actually passed. I definitely thought it was like later the same day. And then they said something about the timeline. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm glad we talked this through because I was confused. I was like, wait, is this the time that they're talking about later when he came before? But they also said that he started to leave earlier at Christmas. And like, anyway, glad we talked about it. Then we cut to Emma, Harriet and Mrs. Weston sitting and Harriet's reading and just sobbing. And Emma and Mrs. Weston are like talking about Harriet, even though she's right there. They're like, she looks so ill. Like, why is she so, is she, is she okay? No, she's just sad. Oh, she's depressed. And she's just like sitting there and she looks up at them and she looks like a vampire. Like her eyes are bright red. (laughs) Poor thing. And then Mr. Knightley comes in and he's like, oh my gosh, have you heard the news? And he's so excited. And then he sees Harriet and he's like, um, it was just, I wanted to say that it was nice that you went to go visit Miss Fairfax. And I was like, that's not news. But then who should come in behind him? But Jane and Miss Bates. And they're like, oh, my gosh, thank you for the pork. Have you heard the news? Mr. Elton is engaged. And Harriet just loses her mind almost instantly. Bursts into tears. And Miss Bates thinks that she's happy for Mr. Elton. So she just continues on. She says, mother likes the hind of pig best of all. Her name is Miss Augusta Hawkins, and she is worth 20,000 (laughs) pounds. It's the one breath that really does it for me. And also the absolute insistence on thinking that Harriet is crying happy tears for some reason. When have happy tears ever looked like that? She is bawling. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's really unable to read the room in this situation. And she's just really excited that she has the gossip first for once. I think the best part is though she goes, but I couldn't have beat Miss Woodhouse to this knowledge. And she goes, I knew it. You who knows everyone's heart. And poor Emma is just sitting there like, oh, this is the worst. This is the worst moment of my life by far. Yeah. Then Emma goes to talk to Mrs. Weston alone at her house another time. And she's like, I was so sure about Harriet and Elton. And Mrs. Weston is like, well, it can be difficult to figure out how to impart one's wisdom on a friend. And she's like looking at Emma like, I have something to impart on you if you'll hear me. And Emma's not hearing her at all. She's like, oh, I know it's so difficult. Like as if she is now in Mrs. Weston's role for Harriet. Um, She's like, I understand what you went through with me now. I'm a big girl. Then Mr. Weston comes in to tell Emma that Frank is coming home tomorrow. And Emma makes a passing comment saying, oh, I was beginning to think Frank didn't exist. And Mr. Weston takes this really personally. And he's like, why does everyone think that he's never going to come? And Emma's like, no, I just really want to meet him. And it's, you know, it's actually good that he's so attentive to his aunt because that is that means that you uh, were a good father to him. And that kind of makes up for it. And he says that he will bring Frank tomorrow at four o'clock precisely. So the next day at four o'clock, Frank arrives. And surprise, surprise, it's the guy from the horse. (laughs) And shut up. No, (laughs) the mysterious man referenced in passing through the entire story so far is also the stranger we saw for a brief moment a few scenes prior. This is really a subversion of expectations. Yeah. Stop. He mentions that he must visit a Miss Baines. And Emma says, oh, my goodness, why? And then Mr. Weston, who now in other adaptations, I've been like, Mr. Weston is hot. And I haven't yet said that in this adaptation. But in this moment, he is hot. I, um, you know, no, you may have left me behind on this one. You had me. You had me on the 2020 Emma, Mr. Weston I love this Mr. Weston, but more in the Michael Gambone as Mr. Woodhouse mold for me. Sure. Than, you know, a nice slice of daddy, if you know what I mean. Not daddy. All right. So maybe maybe have the wrong I am torturing our guests right now. No, I just, I was thinking, I was like, this is another instance of I can't read that actor as anybody other than the first role I saw him in because he's also Sir Anthony in Downton Abbey. And he's like the, um, like the old invalid for Edith. And so I can't. That's like the only way I can see him. I'm so sorry. No, that's fair. I actually don't need anyone to agree with me on this one because it was just a passing thought and I'm not (laughs) entirely sure I even think it. But it's good to always say it when I think it because there might be a listener out there who thinks that and I want them to feel seen. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say this is how you make our listeners feel seen. Yeah, just everyone's (laughs) hot. By having incorrect takes. (laughs) Yeah. So Mr. Weston explained to Frank the Bateses being poor and he's like oh Jane is different here than she was when you met her so you should like go pay them respects and Emma's like oh so you knew Jane at Weymouth did you see the incident and then you just see like panic in his eyes he's like what incident what are you talking about and she's like did you see Mr. Dixon save Jane's life and he's like oh yes it was the talk of the town and he was uh, standing very close to her if you know what I mean and He then asks if she's been to Weymouth and she says, no, she's never left Highbury. And this is when we get that moment of her being maybe a little sad that she's lived in Highbury her whole life. Then we get a slice of life scene 
of Emma and Mrs. Weston at the market and we see children playing and we see Emma and Mrs. Weston looking at a tiny puppy. It's a very cute puppy. Always got to point out the dogs. When Emma sees Frank in the Bates's window and he makes this like gagging face at her, he's like, Ugh, what am I doing in here? And Emma giggles and Mrs. Weston notices the two of them flirting. And then Frank comes down and he wants to talk to Emma and Emma sees Jane watching them through the window and closing it in this like little moment. And then Emma starts talking shit about Jane and he like kind of goes along with it. And then later that day, Emma comes in asking if there's been any post at, at her own house. And Knightley is there just writing a letter, just like hanging out in their house. And she's like, did you hear the Coles are having a party? And Knightley is like, so you would never accept an invitation from the Coles. What's the problem? And she's like, um, well, you know, and he's like, oh, what? You haven't been invited. And she's like. They know better than to invite me. Yeah, she's like, they would never invite me or you or the Westons. And he's like, oh, I've already had my invitation. (laughs) And she's like, what? She's just pissed and she has FOMO. And Knightley's like, well, anyway, I'm surprised you're here. You're usually out and about with the prodigal son. (laughs) He says it with such disdain dripping off of his voice. And Emma's like, oh, well, he's he has urgent business in London right now. And then Knightley kind of gives her this look and she's like, he's getting his hair cut. And as that's happening, a letter arrives and Emma looks at it and she starts like getting all giddy and like smug. And she's like, it's an invitation from the Coles. <laughs> and she's so thrilled. And Knightley's like, well, what are you doing? You should uh, reject them right away because she has already stated she would never go. And she's like, well, if all my friends are going and he turns to Mr. Woodhouse and flings his arms out like, can you believe this girl? I love that you described her as having FOMO because I think that's really Emma's defining trait is that she just wants to be involved with everything. She wants her finger in all of the pies because she just wants to be in charge. She loves to be the town puppet master. She is a mix of the town's princess and the town's dictator. She wants full control, but also adoration. Yeah. So the party. Knightley meets Emma outside and she is so proud of him for arriving in his coach. (laughs) And inside we learn that Jane has received a mystery pianoforte. And as they're discussing this, Frank is smirking and she goes off with Frank and she's like, why are you smiling? And they start speculating about whether Mr. Dixon might have sent it. And they're watching Jane across the room. And Emma's thinking, well, A gentleman would never risk a lady's reputation unless, of course, he is most ardently in love. And I realized it's kind of gone back and forth between adaptations, who plants this idea in whose head about Mr. Dixon. But in the book, Emma plants the idea in Frank's head. And that's what happens here, too. But I forgot that that's what happened because in other adaptations, Frank plants the idea as like a way to kind of cover up his situation so I liked that we went back to the original here because it kind of makes Frank less smart like he's just like oh how lucky am I that this thing came up to cover up my ruse yeah I I also like that it's more book accurate here I also love that we see the pianoforte having spent a lot of time in the Bates's house already and knowing that it will not fit well Mm -hmm. there's no room for it then they ask Emma to play the piano and she does this duet with Mr. Churchill And it's actually very sweet. She's like playing and singing and she's like 
clearly having a good time. And Knightley is watching her and giving her these little encouraging nods, which is really sweet. And as Jane watches her, I was like, I like this dynamic between Emma and Jane. We already touched on it a little bit, but it seems like Jane actually wants to be friends. And it's a very different approach than making them kind of in competition and like a little bit just like always trying to one up each other. This Jane just seems to like genuinely be like, good job, Emma. And then like when she goes up to play, she's just like wanting to do a good job. She doesn't want to show off. She just does her thing. Yeah, I think there's two ways to sort of interpret the story. And it's because we get the the book from Emma's perspective. You could read it as this competitive frenemy situation, which is how the 2020 adaptation of Emma plays it up. I think I I am more inclined to interpret the book in this adaptation, even though I like the way the 2020 does it as well, which is that this competition between them is something Emma has fabricated in her head just to deal with her envy of Jane Fairfax. And Jane Fairfax is genuinely as sweet as she comes off because the annoying thing about perfect people is that often they are so sweet and actually not fake and trying to one-up you. So you can't even give me a valid reason to hate you. Why can't you just be like mean or cruel or something? You have to be like perfectly nice and sweet too. Are you kidding me? Can't even have a love to hate moment. It's so unfair. Hate to love is more like it in this circumstance. But <laughs> I also think that they they this adaptation the actress playing Jane makes her seem preoccupied with other things. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the sense that she's dealing with other shit in her head that has nothing to do with Emma. And Emma is just 100% focused on this dynamic. Yeah. Though she does, like when Jane starts playing, she goes up to Knightley and she goes, oh, she plays so much better than I do. And it seems like she's just saying that, like, I don't think she's necessarily fishing for compliments. She's just, and he doesn't give her one, but she's just like, ugh. There she goes again, being good at stuff. And then she goes to sit with Mrs. Weston. And Mrs. Weston is like, did you know that Knightley brought his carriage just to give Jane and Miss Bates a ride? And she thinks that he might have a thing for Jane. And Emma's like, no way. Absolutely not. But as they're watching, Knightley watching Jane play, Frank says that he's convinced Jane to play three more songs and Knightley runs up and starts fighting with Frank. He's like, no, no, no. You're going to tire her out with all that playing. And it's so awkward. Like in front of everyone, they're having this argument and Jane's just like, oh my God. Yeah. And I think the both men fussing over her is her like excruciating pain Mm -hmm. in that moment. Yeah. Oh, so good. And Emma is like, this is no way does he like her, though. Like, try to imagine Miss Bates at Donwell. And she starts, like, laughing about how Miss Bates would be at Donwell. And Mrs. uh, Weston is like, no, Emma, like, first of all, don't be mean. Second of all, I'm serious. Like, he's always like Jane, and he's so concerned with her health, obviously. And Emma looks at Mr. Knightley, and she thinks to herself, A quote from earlier, a gentleman would never risk a lady's reputation unless, of course, he is most ardently in love. Dun, dun, dun. Drama. (laughs) I love the way this ends because it's a cliffhanger unless you know anything about the story. Right. Like for us, it was like, (laughs) why did it end right there? But if you were watching this not having read the book, you're like, oh, my God, does he like Jane? (laughs) What is she going to do? Well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Of Emma 2009, which brings us to our study questions, which are usually standbys. But today we have 
uh, Patreon submitted study question from our patron, Emily. And her question for us to discuss on air is, how is the relationship between the Bates slash Fairfax family shown more in this adaptation than it would be in other adaptations? Do you think it means the relationship within the Bates Fairfax family, like the Bateses and Jane Fairfax, or their relationship with like the outside world? I think we can tackle both. Okay. I mean, for me, I think that the relationship between Jane herself slash her family and the Bateses is shown a lot more um, starting in episode one, actually, when we see the Bateses becoming down on their luck and they're like, oh my gosh, we have to get rid of our house. What are we going to do with the kid? Because the kid is not their child. Like it's their niece. Like her parents are dead. So tragic. And they've taken her in and they clearly love her a lot, but they have to send her away. And so we've already have that dynamic. Um, Then with her coming back, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit already, but Miss Bates talking over her or like answering for her and Jane trying to say something, but ultimately letting Miss Bates take the the reins because she does respect her aunt and she respects her grandma and she like loves them, but it's ex- an exhausting life for her. So it's I love seeing that on display. Lauren and Emily, any thoughts to add? I was going to say similarly, the biggest difference I see to other adaptations is that extra time we get to spend with them in episode one, because it's one thing to hear through dialogue that they used to be of uh, a higher class or at least closer to Emma's ranks than they were previously, but now they've fallen on hard times. And it's another thing to be shown it at the beginning of the episode, even if it's very briefly to kind of see them in a home of relative splendor. And then the next time we see them, they're in this very cramped, darkly lit apartment that's, you know, like it doesn't seem like the entire house is there. It looks like they rent a room. And it seeing that stark difference is, I think, a really great storytelling device and gets us a lot more of the backstory of like the Bates Fairfax clan in a really succinct way. Like it's done really well. We only need to see that one scene of them saying, what do we do with Jane in this nice house before we see them in their current circumstances to really get just how far they've fallen. And I feel like that's not expressed as well in other adaptations. Yeah. Jumping to the other like half of that question interpretation, I guess, about the like the Bates Fairfax versus the world sort of one scene and I I'm fairly confident it was in this episode that kind of said to me how how much they have kind of become outsiders in their own community is when the Knightley family is leaving after Christmas and Miss Bates is wheeling her mother down the gravel drive and just chattering the whole way about how they're going to have such a a nice walk back to the village. Maybe it was the first episode. I can't remember. I think it's in the first episode when um, Isabella has is moving away. Or no, when Miss Mrs. That's Weston right. is leaving. Yeah, it was yeah. after the wedding. Okay, yeah. But yeah, totally. I love everyone's thoughts, and I would only add to it. I think what we get from this adaptation, which we don't always get even in the books, is the why of the Bates family, why they're like this. And the answer to that question is almost because of each other. Like it is played for laughs so much that Mrs. Bates is basically like this mute older lady who is kind of almost part of the furniture compared to her very chatty spinster daughter. And what you see here is that Mrs. Bates caves in on herself when she loses everything, including her granddaughter, Jane. Miss Bates becomes chatty partially to fill that air that was left by her 
mother. And then Jane is shy and timid, partially because she's terrified having been sent away as a small child to live with a man she didn't know very well. And then strained by the dynamic that has formed since she left between her aunt and her grandmother. And I think that it highlights for us just how obtuse and almost cruel Emma is in her actions towards this family mm-hmm. to see that like their relationships have formed them into this group of people who really struggle to make it day to day, no matter what Miss Woodhouse is thinking about and who she's setting up. Yeah, it's it's tragic. I was yeah, I was just going to say Emma likes to dramatize, you know, her own family relationships as as being so dramatic and tragic in some ways. Um, but this is its own little family tragedy that's playing out playing out right in front of her eyes. And she just she doesn't see the realities of it at all. And it makes it even harder to watch her and Frank like just putting them down when they're already down. Like, don't kick them when they're literally at the lowest point that they could be at. It's it's not a good look, but it's definitely thrown into a bigger light in this adaptation. Yeah, this adaptation makes me feel even worse than any others about how mean, especially Frank and Emma are about the bases and about Jane, too. Like, y'all don't need to talk shit like that. Yeah, even Ms. Bates talking incessantly about Jane is put into context because Jane is the only, like, bright spot in her life, the only thing that's turned out okay. It's, oh, it's devastating. And without giving too much away, it makes Box Hill. I know I'm not looking forward to that. Thank you so much for your question, Emily. Uh, Patrons, that's a reminder that at the $15 tier, you can submit your own study questions for our coverage of certain adaptations. And we are happy to discuss them on the air. So please send them in. So that leaves us with our standby study questions. First, best line delivery. Oh, speaking of the Bates, I think it for me, it has to be thank you for the high quarter reports. And by the way, have you heard the news? Mr. Elton's engaged. That was my favorite line delivery of the whole episode. I second that. It was peak comedy for sure. Only to be topped by what she says immediately after, which is, um, oh, what was it? Okay. Mother so prefers the hind. Her name is Augusta, Miss Augusta Hawkins and she's worth 20,000 pounds. Yeah, she's the hind of pig. I have two. In addition, we have Mr. Knightley talking about liking to take his horse instead of going in a carriage. And he says, this gentleman likes to leave a place when he wishes. He likes to be able to stride out into the world as he wishes and go home again when he chooses. He does stride, doesn't he? Cue fight song by Rachel Platt. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, my other one was when they were talking, like it started to snow and Isabella is saying like, well, I can get out and walk if we don't have enough room in the carriage or like if the carriage breaks down or so. I don't know why she says she'd get out and walk. I remember it from the book. And John Knightley goes in those shoes. I don't think so. (laughs) Once again, nails. Yes. Okay, mine is, uh uh-uh, careful there. Miss Woodhouse's cloak must not be crushed. Ugh, Mr. Elton with a cringe. Yeah, so cringe. God bless. All right, second question. Notable changes from the book. They don't have to be good or bad. They can be either or neutral. I have a question. Is that how they find out about Elton being engaged in the book? Because I seem to remember that not being how it happens. It's been over a year since I read the book now, so I don't recall. I can say it happens. Miss Bates is the one to break the news. Okay. But it happens, I believe, when they go to visit Miss Bates. Okay, so she doesn't show up at their house. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, 
not as big of a difference as I was hoping it would be. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's like pretty book accurate. So let me just think. Someone else can go first. I'll go. Um, there is something that adaptations of Emma always seem to think is crucial. And I'm not sure why, which is to give us a moment where Frank is seen before he's actually met. And I am not sure why every single adaptation does this. I'm not wrong. This doesn't happen in the books. No, I don't. I don't think so. Because I had the same thing where it's like my notable change was why did Frank Churchill just randomly pop up for a scene? And then I second guessed myself and said, well, wait, maybe he did randomly pop up in like a sentence in the book. But I don't think so. I'm pretty sure he just comes yeah. and just meets Emma. But this adaptation and every adaptation seem to insist on inserting a little scene in there where he flirts with Emma on a horse, then rides away. And then they're, Mr. Weston's like, this is my son, Frank Churchill. And Emma's like, oh, we've met. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that happening in the book. So that's a good addition. It's like, is this just in like the period drama playbook where it's like, you must meet a mysterious person on a horse. You cannot meet him in a room. You cannot meet him around other people. You must have a run in on a horse on a deserted garden path. And then you can see him for real. I was like, what? Who is writing the playbook for these scripts? I don't understand. And I'm sorry to Jane Austen if this is in the book. And I'm sorry because to us also because our listeners will let us know, but we don't remember. Molly, it she's moment. not alive, so it's OK. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thanks for clarifying, though. I will say the best introduction in any Jane Austen adaptation ever would be Brandon and Marianne in the 1995 uh, Sense and Sensibility Can't Be Beat when she's singing and he wa like comes in and he's staring at her like the world revolves around her. It's the best introduction of all time. So I don't need Frank Churchill saying I'm not lost. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it was such an awkward, weird scene too. like, uh, I don't know, it, it seemed weirdly placed right like why would he choose that moment to turn around and run away does anybody have any other uh like adaptation changes or is it just simply this accurate it's pretty accurate there i don't know if it would have taken place in this episode but uh one of my favorite scenes in the book is um when harriet brings out her box of treasures that she's collected from her time pining after mr elton and ceremonially burns them oh yeah that that has to happen they can't have cut that but when it may or may not occur later a little a little later okay i i hope it does i will neither confirm nor deny so then we do least favorite and favorite parts of the movie we start with the least favorite because we want to end on a positive note. Um, I will bring it again to that Frank Churchill scene. I think it's very confusing in the narrative uh, where it is. And I think it's very jarring to then see him a little bit later and be like, oh, you were just here. And then he's like, oh, thank you. I was here a week ago. And you're like, that was three, three minutes ago, but okay. And I would also say... I like the device of narrative Emma, but I think it's a little like it's very like standard BBC fair to have that like little voiceover thing. I'm a lukewarm on that narrative device here. I like it better than the journaling in the Gwyneth Paltrow, but I'm glad they use it with a light touch, I will say. I was going to say I feel like it would make more sense if they used it with a heavier touch so that it wasn't so random. Like if it was a through line throughout the thing instead of every now and then Emma being like, a man must be really in love if blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay. Yeah, I felt that way about several Austin adaptations. It's like, oh, they've they've chosen a, a thing to set them apart, but they didn't lean into it enough. 
like if you're gonna do it mm-hmm. you've got to really make that part of your production and yeah I agree either you cut it or you do it way more to like acclimate the audience to this being part of your adaptation yeah I think my least favorite part was not an actual critique like those were all very well-reasoned things for why something should or should not be in the narrative my least favorite part was the CGI snow right before the Elden proposal (laughs) I didn't even notice (laughs) it caught my eye immediately that's so funny I mean it's a tv show it's 2009 it's not like the special effects budget is going to be that high so it makes a lot of sense to me but I had to pick a least favorite and I really enjoyed the episodes and my least favorite is (laughs) the CGI snow That's so funny because I went to um, Warner Brothers Studios a couple months ago and went to the Gilmore Girls set. And one of the things that they told us was about snow in the show because they started out using like asbestos, which is obviously very bad for everyone. And they were like, wait a minute, this is bad for everyone. So they stopped using asbestos. Like that's how they used to do snow, like across film, I guess. And then they switched to potato flakes or like potato starch flakes. Like it's just like flakes of potato starch. And if you watch Gilmore Girls, it's just so fake. They're just dumping potato starch from the sky and none of it melts. It's just sitting on their shirts. Anyway, so uh, I love the fake snow. It's just the the swirly snow is what's CGI. I'm sure they use something like potato flakes or like something else for like snow that actually needs to coat the ground to like be in the actor's clothes or things like that. But it, it was like one moment specifically where it's swirling in front of the carriage. And I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> I love that. We're watching Frosty the Snowman. Incredible stuff. Similar little nitpick that I don't think even was like my least favorite or whatever. It just like stood out and was jarring to me. Was And this is such a specific thing. Mr. Woodhouse's knit scarf. <laughs> like, I'm just staring at it. Like, I know what knit stitch that is. And like, this is so just out of period. And like, it's got the stupid little fringe on the end of a knit scarf. Like, what are you, what are you doing? It just, it bothered me so much. And every time he wore that, all I could do was laser in on that scarf and think about it. I love how specific that is. Okay, counterpoint though, he does look darling. He does look <laughs> very darling. He looks so cozy in that scarf, but it just, it threw me off every time. Amazing. Mine is, I love John Knightley. I really, really love him in every, in the book and the adaptations. But I think that I like bored John Knightley more than I like crotchety John Knightley, which is more book accurate. But like, I forgot that that's how he was in the book. And I think that I became more accustomed to watching the more like, like Hugh Laurie, John sort of Mr. Palmer yeah Mr. Palmer energy John Knightley um this John Knightley has his moments where I'm like yes this is I mean he's funny but like I didn't like how he turned to Mr. Woodhouse and this happens in the book but he turned to Mr. Woodhouse and he's like (laughs) very book I know he's like "I, I know you wanted to come out tonight but now look where we are stuck in the snow and I'm like leave him alone um so that made me kind of sad he's such a bitch yeah he really is leave Mr. Woodhouse alone leave him alone so and I like I want I've gotten used to loving John Knightley because I've been spoiled by these other adaptations that don't do the book accurate thing. It's just, it really has to do with what order you watch the adaptations in, I feel like, (laughs) because this John Knightley, like, I love him, but he's just a little bit mean. So that's my least favorite thing, I think. Fair. All right. Now we got to say favorite things. I'll start, I suppose. I'll I'll go with 
at least one that has already been said, but Knightley bursting out of the doors on Christmas Day with a giant smile on his face <laughs> is like peak cinema. Yeah. I will also give it to because it hasn't come up yet. Um, the performance of the guy who plays Frank Churchill in this. I really like this Frank. It is not an easy character to nail. We have nitpicked pretty much every other Frank Churchill we've seen of the other two we've seen. And um, I think he has a sort of boyish sheepishness that hides his skeevier activities in this one. And I think he kind of has like one of those faces that you'd trust, which makes his later actions sort of unbearable. Well, it almost, I mean, I think that it really goes to make him more of a character that stumbled upon doing something shitty. He is like, oh, fuck, I'm in this situation and like things just happen to him and he just doesn't make good choices. But it, it makes him less sinister, I think, in my opinion. I will say I had two favorite things. One is very small, but it's just like, you know, the the sort of sleeveless like teal dress that Emma wears in a couple scenes like over a shirt mm. the color of that is just so perfect on Rommel Garai <laughs> like so I really love that but also the scene where they're leaving Randall's at Christmas and that moment between Emma and Knightley where he's like we have to make sure that your father is comfortable I'll go call for the carriage just like that moment was so perfect and lovely and it was a, a great character interaction this adaptation does the casual intimacy between Emma and Knightley with a uh, such care and also they get the room to do it because it's longer my favorite was also an Emma and Knightley moment so that was a perfect tea up Emily thank you and mine was when they are discussing both the Cole's invitation and then Frank Churchill and his haircut, because it's just such a perfect, those two actors have great chemistry and it's just so funny watching them banter and go back and forth. And it's such obvious flirting that is hilarious to me that at this point in the narrative, they do not get it because <laughs> as a viewer, I'm watching it like you guys, this is like Regency foreplay. Like you do realize that this is what your argument is and you're doing this right in front of Emma's dad. <laughs> <laughs> Right in front of yeah. his salad. Right in front of his salad. Yeah. Mine is also Emma Knightley, um, <laughs> as we can, you know, imagine. Um, every moment that they're standing outside of a party together, the first one where she's like, I'm so embarrassed to be seen with you not arriving in a carriage. And then later when she's like, I'm so proud of you for arriving in a carriage. Uh, I just loved the juxtaposition of those two together. Oh, incredible. Great picks. Finally, last but not least, who wins the episode? Slightly different because this can be like a character, an actor, or, you know, uh, any person on the production team or the audience for that matter. <laughs> I think Johnny Lee Miller really killed it. The problem with this adaptation is that for every who wins the episode, it's going to be Johnny <laughs> Lee Miller. Fair. He's fantastic. <laughs> so good. I will give a non-Johnny Lee Miller answer and say Romola Garai's facial expressions win this episode for me because she's just like her eyes are so expressive and just the way that she contorts her face to show either like disbelief or confusion or disgust is just so, so good. So her facial expressions win everything for me. That's what I said last episode. So I'm going to choose something different. I'm going to give it to... Uh, the actor playing Jane Fairfax, because I think that I really feel like her interpretation of Jane is 
book accurate, but also like that's another role that's really hard to nail that like to understand why she is the way she is and what's going on in her head. And I feel like even in just a few short scenes, we've started to get that from this Jane. So I'm excited for her. Absolutely. And I will give it to the actor playing Mr. Elton because he is so handsome. He is giving ingenue male face and manages to make us all cringe with the full gusto that Mr. Elton should make us cringe in spite of his face. Well done. (laughs) Very good. So good for him. (laughs) All right, listeners, that concludes this episode of Pot and Prejudice. For next time, we are going to be covering episode three of this adaptation, Fairly Predictable. But first of all, Emily and Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. We had so much fun with you guys. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yes, you can find us online at reclaimingjanepod.com. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts under Reclaiming Jane. And then we're also on all the social medias. We are on the formerly known as Twitter (laughs) or X as at Reclaiming Jane. We are also at Reclaiming Jane on Instagram and Reclaiming Jane Pod on Facebook. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Molly, that wraps us up for the week. So until next time, stay proper and burst out of your double doors into a beautiful snowy countryside because you deserve it. Everyone deserves it. Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.